0: Gracious Father, please help me to speak your word faithfully and clearly. Uh, Please give us hearts uh, and minds that are ready to hear your word. Uh, May we be among those who have ears to hear, uh, that hear your word and trust it. Uh, Give us a willingness to live it out by the power of your spirit. Uh, Please, Father, open our eyes in particular to see the future and to live our lives now in light of that future. Amen. Uh, Well, I suspect that um, most of us here have probably heard someone share their testimony. That's their story of becoming a Christian. Uh, The person's become a Christian. uh, And now they just want to share what difference being a Christian has made uh, in their life. Uh, And for some people, as you hear them share their story, uh, they really seem to go to great lengths uh, to show how becoming a Christian has made their life so much better. Are you listening to their story? Uh, that, that you hear them saying that they've got more purpose, more, more meaning, more fulfillment, more peace, more joy? Everything is just so much better. After a while of listening to them, uh, you start to wonder if this person's even human or not, right? Are they, are they living in, in the same world that you're living in? Right, because whether they mean it or not, the, the overall message or, or vibe of their testimony is, I became a Christian and now my life is so much better right now so much better. It's the same on the flip side, in a sense, that uh, if you're a Christian and you have an opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus, you're racking your brains, what should I say to this person to persuade them to take Christianity seriously, uh, to become a Christian? Well, what would you say? Well, 50 years ago, you might have uh, tried to persuade them that Christianity had real benefits in the future. Because back then, by and large people believed in God, they believed in sin, they believed in ultimate things like heaven and hell and they wanted to know how they could be saved from hell and go to heaven. but these these days most people don't believe in those things, do they? So they're not so concerned about the difference Christianity might make in the future. They want to know what difference will Christianity make to my life right now? Does Christianity actually work? That's what they're wondering. And either consciously or not, I think we know this. We know that this is what people are looking for. So we find ourselves saying that if people become Christians, their lives are going to be so much better. More purpose, more meaning, more satisfaction, more peace, more joy. Everything's just going to be so much better. And in one sense, that is true. It is true. Becoming a Christian does lead to a better life right now. How could it not? Well, you know that your sins have been forgiven, that your shame has been taken away, that you're completely secure in God's love, that you've got a a family of brothers and sisters in Christ who are looking out for you, that you have a a rock-solid hope for the future. There's all sorts of reasons why the Christian life is far better, so much better, right now. But, but, the Christian life is not better now in every way. It's not better now in every way. In fact, if we get preoccupied with the benefits of the Christian life now, we can easily forget about the future benefits, right? And as Christians, the future is where the main action is. The future is where the main action is. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that if you focus too much on the benefits of the Christian life here and now, it's actually dangerous for your faith. It's dangerous because you'll end up forgetting the future, which breeds cynicism. Forgetting the future breeds cynical Christians. That's what's happening in Israel, in Malachi's day. But we've seen, as we've looked through the book of Malachi, they're still kind of going through the motions of their faith, turning up at the temple, offering sacrifices, saying prayers. But in the midst of that, they are so cynical about God. And the reason they're cynical, God's zooming in on it at the end of the book of Malachi. The reason they're cynical is that they've forgotten the future. Have a look. In verse 13, God says, You have spoken arrogantly against me. Uh, So Israel says, what have we said against you, God? What have we said that's so arrogant? You know, Israel, they're playing dumb throughout the book of Malachi. Uh, Maybe they just are dumb. I don't know. But they say, well, what have we said that is so arrogant? Uh, So in verses 14 and 15, God starts to answer. He says, "Uh, you have said that it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed Certainly, evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. But here, there's cynicism. It's futile to serve God. Why? Because you don't gain anything from it. What do you gain? By living God's way, they say, by carrying out the requirements of his law. What do you gain by being someone who, who genuinely repents of their sins? Whether well, That's what that going about like mourner's bits about. Right? You get out your sackcloth, your ashes, you, you go about like a mourner before God. You're, you're truly repentant of your sins. But what do you gain from that? You gain nothing. There's absolutely no benefit, no blessing. In fact, as far as Israel could tell, the people who were, who were enjoying life more were the people who could not care less about God, didn't even give God a second thought. Right? It's the, the people who were arrogant before God who were blessed. But the, the, the people who did evil that prospered. The people who flagrantly put God to the test, right? shaking their fist at God, defying God. It's those people that were successful. Like last week, we we did see that there are abundant blessings found in the Christian life, in living for God, in living for Christ, but in some ways, living for God now does not make your life better now. That is the trap Israel has fallen into. They're, They're looking at the people around them, all the people who are rejecting God, and they're thinking that those people are doing better than us. At least on the surface, those people, their lives seem to be better than ours. They seem to be having more pleasure, more comfort, more, more fun. And to be honest, it's probably because in many ways they were having more fun. Isn't that true? It's quite fun to be prosperous. It's fun to be blessed. It's fun to keep doing the wrong thing and get away with it. And we can think like this. Jesus, I chose to follow you. I chose to go into full time gospel ministry. I chose to plant a church, for goodness sake. And yet I'm going blind while many of my friends who couldn't care less about you have perfect vision. What's with that? If I was to be preoccupied with having my best life now and forget about the future, I could easily say it's futile to serve God. What's the point? What's the point? Some of you here are single, but you you really do long to be in a relationship. Uh, But then there's chapter 3, verse 14. You want to be someone who does carry out the requirements of God's law, who lives God's way when it comes to relationships. So you find yourself saying no to quite a few possible relationships. And what do you gain from that? What do you gain? Probably you look at your friends who aren't Christians and they seem to be really enjoying their relationships. Despite the fact that many of them are clearly against God's ways. But if you were to completely forget the future and be preoccupied, as Joel Osteen tells us, the American pastor, preoccupied with having your best life right now, you could easily say it's futile to serve God. You gain nothing. Or perhaps you look at your life with all its sickness and chronic depression and anxiety and you wonder why it is that your friends who are openly hostile to God are doing so much better. Isn't it true that if you were to forget the future, be preoccupied with having your best life now, you could say, what's the point? What's the point? Right? I tried that Christianity thing out, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. I'm still depressed. I'm still anxious. I'm still sick. That's what Israel's doing. Why do they, they're forgetting about the future and because they're, they're wanting to have their best life right now and it's making them cynical about God. And now so far the pattern in Malachi has been that um, God raises an issue, Israel asks a question in response and then God gives his, his kind of comprehensive answer to their question. I mean, this last section of Malachi is a little bit different, but because God doesn't give his full answer straight away, right? Instead, he introduces us to another group of people in verse 16. You see them there. Uh, these are not the cynical Christians uh, of verses 13 to 15. These are faithful Christians, right? Faithful because they've remembered the future. Have a look there in verse 16. Malachi says, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. Right, so twice we're told that this is a group of people uh, who genuinely fear the Lord. They're not necessarily uh, in terror of God, but they have a healthy respect for God. They revere God. That They, uh, they know that he is their glorious creator and they're just humble creatures. They they live in fearful reverence of God. And notice that they want to live a life that honours God's name. Remember remember God's name is like the the full glory of who he is. It's the fullness of his character, his perfection. So this is a group of people who wants to live in a way that puts the spotlight on God, that magnifies just just how incredible God is. That's this group of people. And Malachi tells us that they talk with one another. Oh, well, Oh We're not told what they say, they're just talking with one another. Uh, but it's pretty clear that it's different to what the cynical ones were saying in verses 13 to 15. Right, it's clear uh, because Malachi tells us that God listens to what they say and he likes what he hears. He likes it, he writes their names in his scroll of remembrance, you see. From what they're saying to one another, God knows that these people have not forgotten about him. So he wants them to know that he will never forget about them. That's the point here. Their names are written in his scroll of remembrance. Elsewhere in the Bible, his book of life. Those who are going to be citizens of the new heavens and new earth. Now this could be a group of of people within Israel who've always been like this. They've always been faithful to God, or it could be a group who've started to respond to Malachi's preaching. I remember back in chapter seven uh, in verse seven, uh, Malachi said, "Return to God, right So perhaps these are some of the first people who are doing that. right Either way, it really doesn't matter because the point is that God notices that these people are different. And in verse 17, he starts describing them. Look there in verse 17. On the day when I act, they, that is, the people in verse 16, will be my treasured possession. So God speaks about these faithful believers, these faithful Christians, and he points them to the future, to this day on which he'll act. Uh, we see this day a few times in this passage, right? If you uh, flick through the passage, you see in uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, uh, it's called the day that is coming. In, in, down in verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3, it's the day on which God will act again. Uh, chapter 4, verse 5, it's the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Right? This day of the Lord, uh, it's a pretty well-known theme throughout the whole Bible. It's the day on which God will finally uh, kind of step into history and act in a definitive way, in a full and final way, bringing his justice completely. It's on this day, not before, this day, that every wrong will be set right, every injustice will be uh, uh, punished, every uh, crime will be punished, every wound will be healed. Uh, this day, I guess, is a little bit like I tried this illustration out on Gabby yesterday, uh, so we'll see how it goes. But uh, this day is a little bit like when I'm sitting in our, our lounge room watching football. Right? So just imagine I'm sitting in the lounge room watching the football, and our kids are happily playing outside, you know, in the sand pit, on the trampoline. Uh, but then a fight breaks out. You know, someone snatched something, it started World War III, uh, and so you, you hear the kind of fight simmering up, and of course, I'm watching the football, I don't want to be distracted, I don't want to go outside, and so I start yelling out commands, warnings, you know, just stop fighting, stop snatching, Ada, give that back to Charlie, Charlie, give that back to Ada, right, if you don't stop, I'm coming out there, and I'm going to sort things out once and for all. Of course, uh, typically, they completely ignore what I say. Uh, So eventually, I do have to step outside. It's the great and dreadful day of Daddy, you see. Daddy is turned up to administer his justice, to right every wrong, to heal every wound, to sort everything out. That's this day of the Lord. My justice is far from perfect. What we need is not the day of Dad, but this day of the Lord. The day when God stop, stops issuing warnings. He stops issuing commands. And he turns up to sort everything out. That's the day of the Lord. And in the in verse 18, the first thing we see about this day is that it's a day of distinction. We look at verse 18. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And between those who serve God and those who who don't. In this world, sometimes it's a bit hard to work out who's who, who's with God and who's not, who's righteous and who's wicked, who's serving God and who's not. But on this day, it'll all be revealed. Everyone will be shown for who they are the righteous and the wicked, those who serve God and those who don't, those who fear and honour God as he deserves, and those who are arrogant before God, who shake their fists at God because they think they can get away with it. And in the rest of the passage, really, God tells us how he will treat these two different groups of people on the day of the Lord. So in verse 17, we see that for those who honour God as they should, this day of the Lord is a day of salvation. Verse 17, on the day when I act, these people will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. So in this day, some people will be spared by God. They'll they'll experience his wonderful compassion. Of course, the the length of sparing there uh, makes it very clear that it's not like these people uh, have earned God's compassion. They don't deserve his compassion because of their obedience or their faithfulness or or their their sacrifices for God. No, these people have been spared. Twice we're told they've been spared. Rather, they've received God's compassion that they don't deserve. The only qualification is that they've been humble enough to come back to God, as Malachi has called. Humble enough to fully repent and, and, and confess their sins to God. Uh, they're a bit like the youngest son in Luke 15. You know that story? Uh, the son who realises just how foolish he's been to reject his father. So he comes home to his father in, in complete humility, knowing he deserves nothing from his dad uh, aside from total rejection. That's all he deserves. Uh, but we're told there in Luke 15 that his father has compassion on him. So much compassion that he not only doesn't give him the judgment that he deserves, but he showers him with, with abundant blessings that he doesn't deserve. And what's the heart of those blessings? The blessing's not so much in the in the fattened calf or the party. The blessing is being with his father, in knowing that he's loved by his father, in knowing that he is one of his father's treasured possessions. And that's verse 17, isn't it? These people who've returned to God, who've been spared by God and experienced his compassion, will be his treasured possession. This is what God wants throughout the Bible. A people for himself who know deeply and profoundly that he is their God and they are his people. We see it in Exodus 19. God calls Israel his treasured possession. We see it in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter takes God's words to Israel in 1 Peter 2 and applies them to the church, to, to us. He says, you are God's special possession. Of course, Malachi is ultimately looking to the future. When God's people will finally be with him and know that they are his treasured possession, it's Revelation 21 where where John says God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So for some people, for those who who humbly come before God, repenting of their sins, For those people, this day of the Lord is a day of wonderful salvation. Malachi unpacks the picture a bit more of just how great this salvation is in chapter 4, verse 2. Have a look there. Uh, There it says, But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. Maybe you remember back in chapter 2, God's people, uh, Israel, said, "Uh, Where is the God of justice? Where is this God? I think it was chapter 2, verse 17. Where is this God of justice? Because the reality is, as we live in this world, we don't see all of God's justice, do we? It's like the, the sun of, uh, of God's justice is just below the horizon. I'm sure, we get glimpses of it from time to time, but it's not complete. So that's the point of this picture here. Uh, so in this world, uh, the reality is that sometimes the arrogant do prosper. Sometimes the evil do just get away with it. That's the way it works in this world. But one day God says that the sun of his righteousness will rise up and shine fully and finally into this world. It's a wonderful thing. Right? It's on this day that every evildoer will be punished. Every arrogant person who's, who thought that they could get away with sin will be brought low. Every single crime will be punished. Everything will be sorted out. And for those of us who trust and honour God, that's, that's a wonderful thing. Because notice that this uh, son of God's righteousness brings healing. It's got healing in its race, right? It's like God is finally, you know, in Genesis chapter 3, it's like all of creation where it was like a crystal vase that was dropped on the ground and smashed into a billions and billions of pieces. And now finally, as God's righteousness comes, he's setting everything right. Putting all the broken pieces of this world of our lives back together—the ultimate reconciliation, healing, the setting setting right of everything. So that in the book of Revelation again, we read of every wound and tear and pain and sickness being completely gone. The Son of God's righteousness has risen up with healing in its ray. And God says, uh, you'll go out and frolic like well fed calves. I don't know when the last time you frolicked was, but this is something to look forward to. Right here, yeah, it's a picture. It's a picture, isn't it, of a, of a young animal, a calf that's been kept in a stall, kind of cooped up, and now it's finally been released. Right? They're, they're frolicking, right? reveling in their new life and freedom. Right here, it's another picture of what we will enjoy in the new heavens and new earth incredible new life and freedom. A place in which we'll be well-fed, Malachi says. Every longing, every craving, every desire that we have, completely satisfied. Well-fed. And then there's verse 3. Then God says, you will trample on the wicked and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. I don't know what you feel about that verse. It's a bit—it's course of issues, right? Because doesn't it seem to be saying that God's people are going to take real delight in punishing the wicked, trampling them beneath their feet. But we know from verses like Ezekiel 33 verse 11 that that God does not delight in punishing the wicked. He explicitly says that. So, So I don't think his people are going to delight in that. But the delight here is not so much in the punishment of the wicked themselves, but in this great reversal that happens on the day of the Lord. The delight is in the fact that on this day of the Lord, those who seem to be on top, who are in power, who, who were the great winners in this world, will be humbled by God. And those who seem to be on the bottom, to be weak, to be marginal, to, to be losers in this world, will be exalted. They'll be lifted up by God. It's this great reversal that that causes the the picture of this animal frolicking about in great delight. So for some people, those who honour God as he deserves, this day of the Lord is a day of of great salvation. But for others, of course, it is a day of judgment. Chapter 4, verse 1. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace, all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire." Uh, This is a a farming analogy. I don't know if it happens these days for farmers. Some of you have grown up on farms. But certainly in Israel, uh, the Israelites would have known that a farmer would gather in their harvest and once the uh, the harvest had all been gathered in, all that was left in the field uh, was this useless stubble. You really couldn't do anything with it. So the farmer would just set it on fire to get rid of it. Their aim was to completely get rid of it, to destroy it so that they could plant a new harvest. And that's the point here, isn't it, where God says not a root or branch will be left to them. It's complete destruction. That's the picture. See, the cynical Christians back in chapter 3 thought that some people could put God to the test. They could disobey God. They could defy God to his face and they'd just get away with it. But God says that when he turns up as the creator of the universe, absolutely no one is going to get away with it. No one will get away with it. It's complete destruction. And I don't want to say that kind of glibly, lightly. I know that's hard to hear. It's hard to grapple with for myself. I've got plenty of family and friends that I love who as far as I can tell at this point are headed for this judgment. I pray for them. I want to share the gospel with them. I pray that they embrace, they humble themselves, that they embrace God's compassion. But as far as I can tell at the moment, that's not the case. But God does tell us again and again, Jesus tells us, uh, that, that they will not let a rebellious world rebel forever. There will be a point when God will turn up to fully and finally administer his justice to set everything right. It's this day of the Lord. And that's why in verse 5, the day of the Lord is called a great and dreadful day. It's great for those who've humbled themselves before God. This day will be a day of great, wonderful salvation. But it's dreadful for those who've remained arrogant before God who thought that they could sin against God and rebel and just get away with it, they'll receive this judgment. Salvation that we don't deserve. Judgment that they do deserve. So the book of Malachi finishes really with God's cure for cynical Israelites, cynical, cynical Christians. And his cure is that whatever's going on in our lives, we must remember the future. That's a cure. Whatever's going on in your life, you must remember the future. Remember that the arrogant are only prospering now, the evil are only getting away with it now, because God hasn't acted yet. God hasn't turned up to administer his justice fully and finally. Remember that future. God says, and he calls us to live now in light of that future. Look in verse 4. He says, remember uh, the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. In light of everything I've told you about the future, God says, remember how I've told you to live now. Remember all those laws, those commands. Don't don't be uh, among those who cynically say, what do we gain by living God's way? Be among those who fear God, who trust God, who live his way now, because you know that future benefits are coming. Of course, for many people in Malachi's day, perhaps for you even this day, this is not just a call to live for God now, but to return to God now, to repent so in verses 5 and 6, Malachi says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. right? God says that the, before he comes in his justice, he'll send a prophet like Elijah I think it's actually Elijah, it's a prophet like Elijah, and we know from what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, you can look it up later on, but we know that this prophet is John the Baptist. So it's really not surprising that when John the Baptist turns up, what's he preaching about but repentance, right? because that's what Malachi 4 verse 6 predicted he would do, more than 500 years before, it's all about people's hearts being turned. People's hearts being turned around. It's repentance, turning away from sin and turning back to God, back to God's people. And God's very clear that if people don't repent, if they don't humbly come before him and confess their sins, seeking his compassion, he will strike them down. So in many ways, this passage itself is an expression of God's compassion. His compassion that's spoken about in this passage. Because in this passage, God is giving us a warning of his judgment. A warning. But of course, this passage isn't the main expression of God's compassion, is it? It's not the main expression. It's good that God gives us warnings. But the main expression of God's compassion is that he makes a way for people like us to be spared his judgment. We're not just spared because God turns a blind eye. We're spared because God sent his one and only son to bear the fullness of his judgment that we deserve in our place on the cross. So that all that's left for us is compassion and grace and mercy. That's a wonderful thing. Why would you not want to turn back to this God who so longs for you to be his treasured possession, to be his son, his daughter, who's a part of his family, that he sent his one and only son to die for you? Why would you not want to turn back to this God? Why would you not want to live for this God now by turning back to him for the first time? I don't know where where people are at who are here, but maybe you need to do that. Maybe you've been thinking that you can just defy God, shake your fist at God, and you'll get away with it. Well, God says you won't. He's warning you today. He's moving in your heart by his compassion to turn away from your sins and trust that you can be spared from his judgment if if only you would trust that Christ bore his judgment in your place. Or perhaps you need to live for God now by turning back to him again. Afresh, you might need to confess your cynicism to God, your doubts to God, your, your faithlessness to God, your apathy. Confess those things to God and embrace His compassion to you in Christ again. And for some of you, you just have to press on why you're not like Israel in Malachi's day. Be encouraged, be strengthened. Keep your eyes fixed on this future, this day of God's perfect justice and keep living now in light of that day. Assured that it is absolutely worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Let me pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for the prophet Malachi and your words to us through him. Father, I pray this day that... um, uh, you know just how just how dominated our lives can be by our present circumstances. Oh, we're so burdened by uh, sickness, by sorrow, by sin, by by uh, suffering of various kinds. It's so easy for us to get the blinkers on and uh, and think, what is there to be gained by being a Christian? My life's just a mess, or at least it's not as good as those people who aren't Christians. Please, Father, help us to confess this to you and please open our eyes this day to see clearly this great uh, future day on which you will turn up and which those who are faithful to to you will be revealed for who they really are and will enter into into eternal glory with you. Uh, Help us to persevere in living for you now in light of this future day, Father. Uh, For your glory, I pray. Amen.